0: Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 49 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. Our recent episodes focusing on the Asia-Pacific and Latin American markets have had a fantastic response and attracted a lot of new listeners, so welcome to anyone who has recently discovered GCP. A reminder also that the best way to listen and to be notified every time a new episode is released is to subscribe on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Castbox, or any other podcast platform. Just search for Global Captive Podcast. And we have another varied episode for you now. Our captive owner interview will be with Marcus Reichel, head of insurance at Canalf, a privately owned German building materials company. Canalf owner of Vermont Captive, and have recently just formed a Luxembourg Captive um, as well. So Marcus will give us the full lowdown on all of that. And in the second half of the episode, we will have our latest quarterly investments update from London and Capital, reflecting on another eventful three months with regards to equities, fixed income, and... Fiscal policy. But our co host for GCP49 is a man who I've known for, for seven or eight years now and recently moved from Aon to Artex Risk Solutions to take up the position of Executive Vice President responsible for operations and business development in the Americas, Bermuda, and Cayman. Adrian, when we discussed this interview a few months ago, the original idea was uh, for us to be doing it from a vineyard in Stenebosch during the Lions Tour of South Africa this summer, but that's looking increasingly likely we will be able to meet up there. So we'll have to do virtually for now. Welcome welcome to the pod, Adrian. How are you doing?
1: Hey, I'm good, Richard. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted at the opportunity. And yes, indeed, uh, we might have to do phase two in South Africa at some stage, Richard, but uh, for now... I just, uh, I'm sitting at my home office desk in the Kinglands looking out on the water. So in all fairness, uh, I'm not suffering too badly.
0: Yes, yes, you've got it a little bit better than I have in that regard. It was snowing here in, 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 in the, the southwest yeah. of England just a few hours ago, in fact, uh, which is bizarre considering we're, we're into April. And hopefully we do get together, whether it's in the UK, Cayman or, or South Africa in, in the not too distant future. Um, Adrian, tell, tell us a bit about your, your new role at Artex and to begin with. What, what appeared, appealed to you uh, about this uh, new challenge?
1: Yeah. So a very, very interesting development, actually, Richard, in that, uh, th- you know, things in Aon were all were, were, were very good. And obviously with the announcement of Aon and Willis uh, made for a very, very interesting dynamic uh, coming in the market over the co- over the next few years. Uh, but within Gallagher's and Artex, there was a feeling that this was a huge opportunity for Artex to further develop um, their growth strategy, their uh, M&A strategy over the coming years. And they felt that it it was an opportune time to actually make a move. And uh, we had a number of discussions around what my mandate would be. Historically, Bermuda and Cayman are within Artex reported into Europe, actually, and they had structurally changed that to have Bermuda and Cayman report into North America. And it was felt that from a leadership perspective, they needed somebody that could come in and drive the business strategically and obviously operationally try and create a platform that would allow them pursue that M&A strategy over time. And the overarching feeling within Gallagher's and Artex is, is one of a very entrepreneurial can-do attitude and it very much appealed to me, Richard, in terms of the next stage of my career. Uh, it reminds me in, in many respects of what uh, it was like 15 years ago, 20 years ago when I worked for IRMG when they were bought by Aon. There was a, just a great yeah. sense of possibility and a great dynamism in there and a, and a great can-do attitude. So I'm, I'm excited about the challenge. Artex have grown very quickly by acquisition over the last number of years. And invariably, what happens in that kind of an environment is that oftentimes the operations struggle to keep up. And it's very, very clear to us in terms of what we need to do operationally. But uh, I think once you have the the top line view is one of growth and M&A and strategy, that's very clear. It, it's very easy to follow that.
0: Yeah, no, really interesting and certainly interesting times ahead for the for the captive management business you mentioned obviously the the planned aon acquisition of Willis towers Watson and, and I would, I would expect we'll see you know further knock-on effects in terms of personnel moving in all kinds of locations and and as as those two operations consolidate uh, so I think we'll be looking at a busy kind of uh, personnel movement across the industry over over the next 18 months how, how do you assess then if you think that we've got the Aeon and, and Marsh as those those two huge captive management operations once Willis are, are brought into it and then you've got of course Artex you've got SRS who we know are expanding in Europe how do you ex- assess the the range of options currently available to captive owners and, and the different uh, different uh, types of options available
1: yeah, no, it's a great question, Richard. I often feel in my career, I've always been just, uh, just that, minute bit, that little bit too late because I hear about these wonderful deals that were done over the years when I go back <laughs> to my IRMG days when Aon bought them and you listen to the multiples. And, you know, I, th- I think you have to be careful in terms of assessing the market at the moment because, you know, it's tough to, see, to, to find the kind of value that we're all looking for. And what you find is the, the ones that have established this deep area of specialty and that have a particular niche that's where they've done a great job of creating value. I think those that have just set up a captive manager for the sake of taking a couple of clients and, and, and having an income stream for a couple of years, they're not really of strategic value for, for those making acquisitions. When you look at the size, and scale of Marsh and Aon and how hard they have to run to, to meet their quarterly, you know, share price requirements, their stakeholder requirements. It's tough for them to find value. I think we're operating in the space where we have the ability to actually extract value or at least take a more longer term view with some of the potential acquisitions we're looking at making. And when you have some jurisdictional changes as well, so for example, in places like the Cayman Islands where we have economic substance change, there's the potential for us to bolt on elements such as uh, actuarial uh, fund administration uh, to our mandate. So I'd be looking to try and expand our offering as well. Having having a long look, Richard, in terms of what our existing value proposition actually is, I mean, the reality is from a captive administration perspective, and I even hate the term, but from a captive administration perspective, I have to assume other managers can all produce a set of accounts and set of underwriting results like the rest of us can do. I'm looking for the differentiators that, 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 that can expand our value proposition in a way that can just have us sound differently and have a, a, a different voice in front of those clients. So some very interesting opportunities in the market. And I think you'll see development of some new entrants to the market as well over time, Richard. And uh, yeah, I'm well aware of who our competition is, but when I look at it statistically, after after the Aon Willis deal, you know, Artex will be the third largest manager in the world by statistics. And uh, I, I think it's time for us to take our seat at the table in terms of what we want to do. And I'm excited about the plan over the, over the coming years. So
0: regarding one of the things when I used to speak to David McManus a few years ago when I was at Captive Review uh, quite regularly, he was always very clear that they were always open to making more acquisitions. And it, it, my sense, unless I'm forgetting something in the last couple of years, Artex has been a little bit quieter on that front. But from what you're saying there, Adrian, it, it seems that you, you very much are, you think, open to looking for, for more opportunities and acquisitions as and when they may arise.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, to, to give David his due, uh, you know, a few years back, there were quite Active And then to my earlier point about, you know, seeking value, I think they were they were careful in terms of the acquisitions they make. Obviously, the most recent one uh, in the last couple of years has been Horseshoe, which was obviously a very material acquisition for us in the ILS track bond commercial reinsurance space. And that continues to be, a, a you know, a fantastic acquisition for us because it just brings us into markets that we were touching previously, that really gives us a strong foothold and gives us a great platform uh, to grow from there. Uh, we've got a very, very interesting hire, uh, in, you know, in that space coming soon, you know, I, I'd like to give it the exclusive on it, Richard, but I'm not sure <laughs> be out in a couple of weeks. But I, I think RTX would be a very, very strong reflection of just what our strategy has been over the last couple of years. You know, high volume, high activity, and then just carefully selecting, uh, you know, the really high value targets in the last while. And, uh, you know, I'm still new enough. Uh, I'm only in two months in the door. So in fairness to Peter Mullen and to Jenny Gallagher, they're giving me some time to kind of get my feet under the desk before we've really looked hard at what our next uh, op- opportunity might be, but uh, who's to say it might be coming in the next few months.
0: Fantastic. Well, I look forward to some uh, exclusives further down the line then, Adrian. It sounds like they're they're coming. They're coming. Um, Well, yeah, really good to to chat all about all that. It actually feels like a while since we've been uh, on the podcast actually discussing the kind of the business of captain management and opportunities there. Obviously, the hard market has been such a big topic uh, on the pod recently, and we are going to come on to that in the second half. Uh, But now we are going to be hearing from uh, Marcus Reichel, uh, head of insurance at Canal for a privately owned German and building materials company as i mentioned at the top of the episode and marcus before going into uh, their recent captive activity began by telling us a little bit about the profile of the company
2: well the knauf group is a family-owned company so hundred percent in the hands of the family still and it's focused on building materials, gypsum-based products, and we see ourselves as one of the market leaders globally. We are basically represented in more than a hundred countries at the moment. And this is supposed to grow. And as I mentioned earlier, so it's gypsum-based products, insulation materials, everything you need for let's say, highly sophisticated buildings
0: uh, in the future. I understand when you joined Canal, you already had a Vermont captive in place. So before we uh, talk about the newer second captive, what what insurance lines was the Vermont captive used when, when you arrived?
2: Vermont captive was set up by a company which we acquired back in 2018. And they already started some innovative uh, insurance solutions in there, Um, a very special medical stop loss policy was placed within the captive and the usual terror TRIA solutions you are having in the US market, um, as well as funding self-insured retentions of the property and casualty program. So this was where it started and it was basically maintained that way, very stable over a couple of years. And so we decided um, when we came on board to keep it w- going that way, looking at what we would call from Germany, pure local U.S. policies. We are going to look into workers' comp in the future. And as soon as it is allowed again uh, in funding life and disability insurances, or not allowed, call it easier to fund life and disability insurances again in the United States.
0: Yeah, just just for listeners who aren't a- aware of that, uh, the Department of Labor needs to approve uh, such lines written into a captive. And there used to be a expedited process known as Expro, uh, which could kind of fast track those applications. and That's currently on hold as we understand it. Yes, so it's a longer process, isn't it, Marcus? So, fingers crossed uh, that may start up again in in the near future. It's really interesting, Marcus, that you kind of did uh, inherit this captive from an acquisition. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes that's very useful. Like it sounds in your situation, it, it was seen as a very valued uh, subsidiary and, and strategy. Sometimes that's not the case, is it? Sometimes you actually want to unwind something. But it sounds like you saw it as a as a asset and an attribute.
2: Absolutely. So we we looked into that. Obviously, there's some some money involved in that already, and it was in the past. However, for us, since we have a decent US operation, we see the value in keeping it and even expanding it. So this is the plan um, for the captive in, in Vermont.
3: Always,
0: always good to hear about expanding captives. And the other piece of exciting news, which I think will be be the first to share on on the podcast is you did form a a new reinsurance captive for the group in Luxembourg in just February 2021. So just a month ago from when we're talking now. Why did you decide to add this second captive to the group?
2: The overall um, objective of having captives for us is carry on the risk, take the risk, and um, provide risk management initiatives to the group. So this is basically what we are going to use the captive for. And for us, since we are domiciled or headquartered in Germany, we saw the opportunities um, from a point of currencies, from a point of management to have an EU domicile captive. And then we looked at various domiciles and selected Luxembourg as a most appropriate, fitting our needs from a crew perspective and also from various other aspects like quality of captive management, knowledge of captive management and proximity to Germany.
0: That's really interesting to hear because at the moment, there's this ongoing debate, as I think you know, particularly in France and Italy, about should companies have their captives in their home country? And of course, we know Germany already has 10, 10 active captives owned by German companies in Germany. Was, was, was it ever considered that Germany might be an option to have the captive there?
2: Well, given my experience with other captives, um, with my previous employers, we felt that as long as we're not having a, a specialized captive management company here in Germany, we should pick up the knowledge we get from from outside of our group. And therefore, we, we really looked into these hotspot locations like Dublin, like Luxembourg, uh, rather than going back to Germany for that. So um, in
0: terms of the captive itself, obviously just uh, one month old, as we said, what lines of insurance uh, will you be writing through the captive?
2: well at the at the first phase, we are looking at our classic property and casualty risks, so we are taking basically some retentions, give the insurer still the chance to front our policies and take the excess risks. but um, let's say the majority of risk is kept for both the property and and bi as well as the casualty programs are kept with us. We expect that we based on our loss ratios have a good opportunity to improve our cost base on one hand, and on the other hand, make the risk management function much more visible within the group. Because obviously, each and every claim is now um, seen by top management.
0: It would be remiss of me, Marcus, to, to talk to a, a risk manager and, and captive owner without mentioning the H-word, the, the hard markets. What is your assessment of, of the hard market? I'm kind of a bit fed up of asking the question, but it is, is such an important one for, for your community at the moment.
2: Absolutely. I mean, this is something which also helped to speed up our process in our decision-making within the group. As I said, we have extremely nice loss ratios, also from from my point of view, for an insurance company. However, um, we were also hit by premium increases and not not really, let's say, limitations in coverages. However, premium increases which we f- felt are not reasonable for us based on our risk. So therefore, I mean, we were able to get away with, 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 with decent um, changes in our programs. However, going forward, basically the hard market was speeding up our, our captive formation in Luxembourg. Absolutely. And again, the Hard market from my point of view is something which is kind of expected. However, the learning of the hard market, I'm having some doubt that this is going, really going to happen because on one hand, we talk about inefficiencies within the administration of insurance programs. The cost base, if you look at 25 to 35 percent of cost on running these international programs, I mean it's not a surprise, then you have no no gain on interest or anything that the rates may go up as soon as you have some loss ratios or some losses hitting the insurance market. Therefore, if it's communicated well and you can prepare, it's something you can deal with. But some players in the market also need to be aware that there's a phase coming after the hard market yeah communicating those decisions
0: in a timely manner is is one of the complaints that we hear over and over again from uh, risk risk managers and insurance buyers so what what you said there that you think that a hard market is of course inevitable they will happen but you need companies need to learn from a hard market so how could do you think insurance partners improve their performance and relationship with the insureds and in in extension the captives
2: On one hand, there is this other buzzword, which is not a harding market, which is called digitalization. So the question really is, what is happening there? I think this should be a market initiative, which includes the insurers, the insurers and the brokers, or an external company who is basically leading and implementing this kind of disruption. So this would be one thing which certainly has to come. So how do you deal this standardization um, rather than set up these these interaction between insured and insurer? So there's something, um, certainly this potential to lower cost in administration. The other, what I would say about our uh, main insurance partners for us, communication last year for renewals for 1.1.21, was very good right so we were informed well in advance something is going to happen so we had time to prepare internally and put up the communication internally however again there's a time coming afterwards and i would be interested to see how these decisions have an impact on the numbers of insurers let's say three years down the road because what i felt um colleagues from my side did in the past though the people with a good risk like the Knauf Group are going into captives or buy simply less insurance? So is it really increasing profits and profit margins for insurers by overdoing premium increases, for example, right? Because obviously uh, bad risks may stay um, with the insurers and the good risks may disappear. And therefore, again, where do we have the balance between premiums and claims going forward? This will be a question I'm interested to see how this really turned out on the long run.
0: Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well you can execute a lost portfolio transfer which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into Novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And RNQ has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, r and is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. fascinating to get that new captive owner perspective from marcus reichel in the first half there well we'll be back with adrian uh, shortly but now it is time for our first quarterly investments update of the year from friends of the podcast london and capital gcp regular christie l is joined this time by portfolio analyst mike trudeau
4: Richard, you'll be very familiar with the notion that, that captives are generally predominantly uh, sort of fixed income investors, and so developments in the fixed income space can often have a sort of outsized impact on investment returns for captives. And certainly, historically, captives have benefited from this thirty-five year kind of tailwind of falling interest rates, falling bond yields, which in turn have driven up prices of global bonds, uh, which fixed income investors have, have certainly benefited from. However, Turning to this year to Q1, 2021 has really started to challenge that narrative. The the benchmark 10-year US Treasury yield started the year at less than 1% at 0.9%. And by the end of Q1, it reached 1.75%. So while the move in absolute terms wasn't Completely unprecedented. We saw similar moves um, in in two thousand, the last quarter of two thousand sixteen. The speed and the magnitude of that move, in relative terms, was extremely unusual, and uh, and, and really that dynamic is the one that sort of um, dictated what happened in in the first quarter of this year. So, Mike, if you could, if you could just explain a little bit at a high level what happened to long term yield in the first quarter of this year and why we saw such a rapid move.
3: Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, as you, as you say. We did see a a sharp move uh, upwards in yields to the tune of kind of 80 basis points um, through Q1. And and as you mentioned, it was a sharp move, but not necessarily, you know, unprecedented. Uh, You mentioned 2016 with the Trump election and 2013 taper tantrum. We we saw similar size moves. I I suppose one of the differences this time around has been uh, the fact that we're coming from a sort of a lower base at one point last summer, we were at uh, 0.5% on the 10-year. So, the move was was felt a bit more this time around. Uh, but I think what's critical you know, to remember in this case is that it's really been a, a reversion to normality. Let's not forget that we've, we've had one of the deepest economic recessions on record uh, as the global economy shut down at this point um, last year. So, it's not necessarily too surprising to see yields rise um, so far this year. In fact, you know, the 10-year yields at that 1.7, 1.75% level is just at the pre-COVID lows. And what's been important to, to actually consider is the reason for the increase. It's, it's really been the result of investors pricing in, you know, several factors. Um, firstly, you know, increased treasury issuance following further fiscal stimulus packages that we've seen from the Biden administration. But I think more importantly, it's, it's really come from increased inflation expectations and also a significant improvement in the growth outlook um, as, uh, you know, a successful vaccine rollout continues in the US, which has corresponded with the easing of restrictions and the opening of uh, economic activity. In fact, you know, during Q1, we really saw a shift upwards in growth expectations from many different uh, economic forecasters and central banks. And, you know, just in the last few months, Global GDP projections from both the IMF and the OECD have uh, have been revised upwards and global GDP is now expected to be in the region of six to six and a half percent for 2021 before easing off in the, in the following s- several years. So we are seeing the first signs of you know a, a strong recovery taking hold despite some of the challenges that we do see in some countries, namely Europe, but in the US, the world's largest economy you know, our base case uh, scenario for growth is, is for growth to approach close to, you know, 7% in 2021, which is, you know, a remarkable recovery given the backdrop of the past 12 months. And, and this should really be supported by a strong recovery in consumer spending. What we've seen over the last 12 months is that consumers are now armed with close to $2 trillion in excess savings. Um, over the last 12 months, which has been the result of, one, the inability to spend as parts of the economy were locked down. There's been some level of precautionary savings. And lastly, um, it's been the result of the significant direct fiscal transfers from the government. And all these put together is likely to result in significant pent-up demand as restrictions ease and is something that we are actually starting to see to see happen as um as many states uh, start to ease restrictions. So, although we've seen a sharp recovery in long-term yields year to date, it has simply reflected fundamentals. It's been the appropriate response to a stronger economic outlook and inflation expectations and therefore hasn't resulted necessarily in any disorderly market reactions and, you know, for these reasons it's it it hasn't really been, been a concern uh, for the Federal Reserve to really alter their monetary policy outlook and uh, and start to tighten rates or reduce QE.
4: So this growth dynamic is obviously good news for investors uh, on a forward-looking basis. But as we know, investment markets tend to, uh, to try at least try to think two or three steps ahead. And I guess this is where the inflation sort of dynamic comes in and the, the rising inflationary expectations that we've started to see. Inflation has been really at the top of the list of, of sort of Q1 twenty one talking points for investors and that shift in inflation expectations as you mentioned has obviously already had an impact on on the bond market but we've not necessarily seen the corresponding pickup in, in underlying inflation yet Is there a risk that we, that we might see uh, you know disorderly or uncontrolled rises in, in underlying inflation over the coming months, quarters, years and is that risk um, the one that, that investors seem to be sort of most keenly tracking?
3: Yeah, that, is, that does appear to be the key questions that um, certainly market participants are asking themselves and certainly we are asking ourselves, which is, you know, is inflation finally here after, you know, a secular downtrend that, that we've seen for decades and, and, and kind of resist that structural uh, disinflationary forces of, of things like automation, tech innovation, e-commerce, uh, coordination of monetary policy, inflation targeting. And uh, aging demographics. Well, you know, we've certainly seen markets have now begun to price in an increase in inflation expectations to above 2%. And we're now sitting at the highest levels in, in, in over eight years as pent up demand potentially meets um, with some supply chain disruptions um, as restrictions begin to be lifted. And that combined with the Fed now willing to, to tolerate inflation above their 2% target for a period of time before considering tightening policy our base case at London and Capital at the moment is that the rise in inflation that we are likely to see in, in the next few months will will likely be temporary and mainly the result of you know significant base effects which really means that you know when we look at the year-over-year year comparison of prices and things like oil um, and other commodity prices those increases will be substantial after really being crushed uh, last March um, But the key question we keep asking ourselves is, will this persist? Will that increased inflation be sustained and persist? And and we believe that sustained higher inflation will likely be limited as a result of the excess capacity that does exist in the economy um, when looking at things like capacity utilization rates or the significant labor market slack. That said, I would say that this is the first time in many years that the risk is certainly tilted to higher inflation readings over the next 12 to 18 months.
4: In terms of um, these bigger shifts in sort of growth expectations, inflation expectations, yields, things like that, how, how have they impacted returns for investors, particularly uh, institutional insurance investors in, in Q1? What kind of returns did, did we see uh, from large index benchmarks?
3: Yeah, so the, the rise in long-term bond yields, you know, has created some volatility in, in kind of core sovereign bond markets, and and really resulted in in sort of this dichotomy in, in performance between equities and bonds so far this year. Within fixed income markets, long-term government bonds have been hit particularly hard, given their sensitivity to rising yields and longer duration profile. Let's remember that you know, rising yields results in uh, lower bond prices. And, you know, in fact, the losses for longer dated treasury bonds have been so great that, uh, that it was the worst quarterly performance in, in more than uh, four decades for, for long treasuries. Corporate bonds have, have fared marginally better as credit spreads remain stable thanks to the improving growth outlook and, and their larger coupons also help to cushion uh, total returns. Also, despite the headlines around rising yields, it's also important to note that actually shorter duration bonds, so in the region of one to three years, have actually held up quite well as as the short end of the curve has effectively been anchored uh, by the Fed who continue to keep uh, short-term rates at the effective lower bound. From an equity standpoint, stocks just continue to grind higher and approach all-time highs. In Q1, the S&P was up uh, over 6%. And this is largely the result of, again, the improved growth outlook, which is is leading to a revision higher in earnings expectations and prospects for companies. And this will likely continue to drive equity markets higher. Some of the things that we've done in, in portfolios this year has largely been to, one, reduce interest rate sensitivity within our fixed income strategies. And we've done that by, one, going shorter duration and also reducing our exposure to the more interest rate sensitive government bond market and from an overall asset allocation perspective we've increased our exposure to equities which should continue to benefit from from the economic recovery
4: you know in in summary the running theme for the quarter and and indeed likely for the rest of the year is this interest rate action uh, that we discussed and 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 inflation expectations for captives i think this means that portfolio sensitivity to interest rates is likely to continue to be a key source of of, of return and, and risk um, for for captives and really needs to be understood, monitored and controlled by the board as well as, as, as any management Sector exposure will, of course, be important um, as as we want to see uh, continued growth. And captives, of course, will want to benefit from from that ongoing economic growth in their investment portfolio. So, ensuring portfolio is portfolio diversification through exposure to sort of to the sectors cyclical sectors that are likely to benefit most in this sort of recovering um, environment should should help to strengthen captive balance sheets and make them more robust going forward. So I think it is that, uh, that like I said, that dynamic between interest rates and, and inflations, particularly for, for key fixed income investors, um, that, that they'll need to continue to pay attention to for the rest of 2021.
0: Welcome back to GCP 49, where I am joined by Adrian Lynch at Artex. Adrian, on particular kind of lines of business or or what's driving kind of captive activity at the moment, employee benefits is, of course, been a long growing area for captives all around the world. The hard market has forced more captives in considering writing lines such as D&O in the past 18 months, which divides opinion. And we generally try and ask all the captive owners on this podcast their views on it. What, what lines of insurance have you seen a particular uptick of interest in regard from whether it's existing or, or new captives writing as, as this market has hardened across across multiple lines?
1: Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say across, most, across a lot of lines, we've seen an increase in activities. Where I would take it back a step, though, Richard, would be actually, I have seen the most activity around uh, the deductible activity within the captives already. So the, for the existing client, we've seen a, a lot of um, stretching of the existing retentions and the deductibles and looking to us as managers to try and find or try and optimize where that risk transfer point actually is. Because, you know, to your point about DNO, it's one thing about running your DNO uh, deductibles through your captive. It's another thing to be able to fund it to the levels of capital that's required. And, you know, when you look at it from an enterprise risk perspective and when you're sitting in front of those directors making this decision, there's a cost of capital element of funding the likes of a DNO deductible through a captive when they could perhaps make a better return on that capital at the parent company level. And, uh, you know, your, your London and capital colleagues can probably talk, uh, uh, better than, than I could on the, on the investment side of it. But it, it's, I see our obligations changing a little bit in terms of becoming that consultative partner around elements such as, as the actuarial reviews, the deduction, the optimal risk deductibles and the optimum risk transfer point to reinsurance. Now, DNO that you've raised, um, I would be a fan of professional Ryan's running through a captive. Um, I've seen it historically, for me it's a case of if but not when, it's 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 a high severity, low frequency, and if you can balance it against a book that perhaps maybe has a significant workers comp element, a significant casualty element, where you have that cash flowing, that actuarial predictability, I think there's an argument to be made. I would worry about the client that just wants to put only professional lines through the captive. I think obviously we'd look at diversifying the portfolio from a risk perspective, but the reality is, you know, the DNO market is seeing rate increases from seventy-five to one hundred and twenty-five to one hundred and fifty percent, and I think you have to realistically assess what's going on in the professional lines market. And I do think somebody that comes out with a solution on the professional lines space that would incorporate a captive, I think, could really have an opportunity to do something over the next few months. Our healthcare clients across all lines have been struggling richard and uh you know i think once you have bedded down the the consolidation activity that took place as a result of uh, Obamacare or the Healthcare Act, we've seen the st- healthcare care statistics reduce in size, but the scale of the consolidated entities has been quite large, which has put increased demands on our brokerage brethren in terms of trying to place those coverages. So I find that the, the healthcare care community very willing to re-engage on their captive to re-examine their existing mission statements, their existing business plans. And it's a good opportunity for us to, to, to stretch those, but again, you have to balance it up against the cost of capital concerns. And those healthcare uh, communities over the last 12 months with COVID, as you can well imagine, you know, they were struggling. They they had an absolute fall off a cliff face in terms of their revenue in the early stages of COVID. And many of those strong hospital systems would have been operating with 180 days cash on hand. Which would, have, which would have reflected you know, a, 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 you know, a strong financial position. None of us could have foreseen what would have happened in terms of elective surgeries falling off in total, which meant the revenue dried up. But um, that being said, you know, the, I think it was a case of just being able to ride it out and get back in the game, and that's what they're doing now. i seeing a lot of interest, Richard, in uh, the private equity groups you know, circling around captives and in different in a way now that you'd have your legacy planners. But I I think what I see in the private equity space is some of these portfolio companies that they're acquiring have sophisticated risk management and sophisticated insurance needs with the result that a captive may be acquired as part of some of these acquisitions on the private equity side. And I love dealing with these guys because they have a great way of extracting value, but a very entrepreneurial view of risk as well. And uh, so I think it's a very, very interesting time, very exciting time, actually.
0: Yeah, the the private equity topic is one that we really need to delve into a bit further on the podcast at some point in the future, because as you say, there can be quite entrepreneurial uses of captives. Presumably, lots of these private equity groups do inherit captives as part of acquisitions they make, and then they've got decisions to make on what to do with them or how to use them, uh, maybe use them more widely across the whole group. So that's certainly one I'd like to explore further in the future. And just lastly, then in terms of on trends, one of the, I always, as I think you know, I always browse and make sure I'm going through all the new license. Instances of captives in various jurisdictions and, and kind of identify who they might be formed by Bermuda and Cayman. And some of this has been quite public, but both licensed uh, cryptocurrency and cannabis related uh, captives in the past two years. There's lots of that, there's lots of kind of new economies uh, out there, which are always growing over time and, and forming captives. Are, are those two particular areas that you expect will see more interest and in, in, in formation of captives from, from those two groups?
1: Yeah, I, I think to be fair to, to Cayman and Bermuda, I mean they've always taken a more entrepreneurial view, but I suppose I would also look at it conversely, Richard, in terms of I would always be challenging our stakeholders in Cayman and Bermuda are we can't persist in doing what we've always done with the captive management industry. And if you look at this this the statistics over the last number of years, they've been, they have been, you know, going backwards in certain jurisdictions, and there's a number of elements, macroeconomic factors, that have, have, have impacted upon those. So challenging those same stakeholders to say well, let's find new ways of writing business in these jurisdictions. So, for example, the the digital asset space is certainly an area um, that regulators are interested and willing to work with. Um, I certainly wouldn't consider it uh, enough statistically for it to be a real trend, but I was was proud to be involved in, in the first couple of ones myself in Cayman, and I know Bermuda have a couple, and I think this industry is here to stay. But I think we know it's here to stay in a way that the insurance is generally a way that will play catch up to what's actually happening in the primary existing industry in the digital asset space. It's not something I would profess to know a lot about, but I I certainly uh, I've spent a lot of time on the West Coast of the U.S. where it just seems to me that it's just transformative. And I think insurance and reinsurance generally tends to play catch up at times we wouldn't be the most innovative of capital and you will find there will be new capital that will come to market that would will be willing to double down on digital assets and go and go after that space. And there's some very innovative coverages being offered at the moment. But I also then, the underwriter in me, would take a more cynical view and say, well, we have to wait until this, this gets tested from a loss perspective. We, You know, it's only as strong as its first set of losses. It's only as strong as its first legal precedent. So we'll have to see what happens, Richard, over the next while um, in terms of what comes out of that business. On the cannabis side of things, yeah, Cayman has licensed a couple of those captives. You know, I would be wary of it in terms of, you know, anti-money laundering, KYC, know your client. It's difficult to bank these industries. It's difficult to operate within the traditional parameters of insurance with these industries. And yes, the captives absolutely are very innovative, innovative, and, and, and I'm proud of what we've done in Cayman. I'm not necessarily sure I would be banking on seeing a huge trend in that growth. I would say, for example, in Bermuda, they always will attract new entrants to the market, new capital in a hard market environment. You can see right now now in Bermuda there's a lot of new activity in the reinsurance space i would say Cayman because Cayman took the strategic position of not pursuing solvency to equivalency like Bermuda has done all of a sudden Cayman has emerged as a real alternative now to Bermuda in what i would call the longevity space richard the uh, yeah. you know yeah. uh, the the life and annuity reinsurance long term care pension risk transfer and we're seeing a very material growth in Cayman in that space in our B3 and class D our class D licenses over the last couple of years and the quantum of those transactions is so materially vast that it makes a very material impact on our assets under management in a jurisdiction like Cayman. Onshore US is a little bit samey across the states. Uh, you know, every state has enacted captive legislation, so they're all trying to take some food off the plate of the Vermonts and the Hawai'is of this world, the well-established domiciles. I wouldn't necessarily say I've seen a huge amount of innovation in those individuals, individual states. And, and look, the reality is you have to look at the infrastructure surrounding captives in the smaller, less experienced states versus the larger, more experienced states like Vermont. And um, But, you know, innovation is good. It keeps us all on our toes and it challenges the existing stakeholders to, to continue to evolve and to continue to innovate. And uh, that's something I certainly feel strongly about within Artex. Uh, I, I, I certainly would like to, to kind of stretch the way we've always done things. And that's the way I would like to view the industry going forward.
0: Yeah, fantastic, Adrian. Really good, comprehensive rundown there of kind of what kind of things we've seen in, in different parts of, kind of the Americas uh, and Bermuda and Cayman as, as well. And, and that's all we've got time for in this in this latest episode of the Global Captive podcast. Thank you to all of our guests, Marcus Reichel at Canalf, Christy L and Mike Trudeau at London and Capital. And of course, Adrian Lynch from Artex. Adrian, thanks for coming on to the Global Captive podcast. Uh,
1: thanks a Richard. Really, really enjoyed it. And, and let's not give up on that south african
0: uh, podcast version two yeah no, absolutely not definitely won't be stay safe stay well and see you next time captives